Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 61 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How you doing? Yeah, good. Um, just pre-warning everyone that I was smug last week and dished out two happy thoughts, but my life is very small at the moment, so I'm recycling one this week. So if anyone's really hanging out to hear the new happy thought, it ain't happening this week. <laughs> You're letting everyone down up front, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just thought I'd lay that down. All right, I'll uh, I'll try and have you back and think of a good happy thought then, just to even the keel. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we've got some Patreon shout-outs this week. Yes, thank you so much and welcome to Karen Williams, Stephanie Mays, Richard Wardle, Jess, Simon McInnes and Rachel Binney. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The building featured during the opening titles of the smash hit fictional TV series Homicide was an imposing New York-style skyscraper. The building, located on the corner of Russell and Latrobe Streets in Melbourne, wasn't just a fictional police headquarters, though. It played that role in reality, too. In the latter half of the 20th century, the Art Deco Tower was a symbol of policing in Victoria and was often referred to as just Russell Street. Nowadays, it's apartments, having been converted into a revamped residential establishment called Concept Blue. But back in 1986, it was still home to the men and women in blue. And that's where we begin this tale today, kicking off outside on Russell Street itself, as many police officers, court officials and civilian office workers were going about their usual daily business. pm, Thursday the 27th of March, 1986, Melbourne, Victoria. Outside the Melbourne Magistrates Court, opposite Police HQ in Russell Street, Officer Wayne Taylor swore as he noticed he'd locked his keys in the car. He and his team had to leave shortly, not enough time to call a locksmith. It was time to get creative. Wayne knew a particularly slippery car thief was appearing in court that day, so he went inside, emerging minutes later with the suspicious criminal who Wayne persuaded to use his zip tool, legally under instruction, to get in and retrieve his keys. 
As Wayne's scowl turned into a smile, the lockpicker returned to court to face the music, and Wayne and his team drove away, passing a brown and fawn-coloured Holden Commodore, which was parked across the road. As Wayne put Russell Street in his rear view, another car pulled up behind the parked Commodore. This car had fake number plates, but it was no criminal inside. It was an undercover anti-corruption surveillance vehicle, driven at this time by a man who'd become a well-known Victorian homicide squad detective. Charlie Bazina raised his eyebrows at the brown and fawn Commodore in front of him, knowing it wasn't a police car and shouldn't be parked there. But in the big scheme of things, he thought little of it, as he parked and got out of the car before walking down Russell Street to purchase some camping gear for the upcoming Easter holidays. Inside the watch house across the street, which housed the cells of the nearby courthouse, Constables Dave Yeoman and Angela Taylor had just fed the prisoners. It was their own lunchtime now, and they could smell the fresh sandwiches emanating from the canteen across the road. Whose turn is it to go get the munchies? asked Angela. The 21-year-old rising star was ducks of her class at the academy, she had a bright smile, and this was her last shift before going on holidays. I'll toss you for it, Dave said with a smile, before he guessed correctly on the heads or tails and ordered a ham, cheese and tomato sandwich from Angela. As Angela walked down the steps, Magistrate Ian West watched her cross the road from the western side of Russell Street. He was waiting for a lift from a colleague, his stomach possibly grumbling around this time too. 19-year-old Constable Carl Donatio's stomach sure was. He crossed the road towards the same canteen as Angela, but being unfamiliar with the area, he doubled back, weaving through the lunchtime traffic and headed towards a different entrance. Carl was doing court security at this time, his most recent stint having rotated through the traffic and records areas in policing. He planned to do surveillance as his career progressed. A man a few years Carl's senior and already progressed to the rank of detective was returning to Russell Street just shy of 1pm. Detective Robin Bailey had an appointment on the hour, so he too navigated the flowing lunchtime traffic while juggling a bunch of forms from the tax office he'd retrieved for his colleagues. As Robin came around the corner, he saw the brown and fawn Holden Commodore. His shoes clicked on the footpath as he hurriedly shuffled towards HQ, reaching it moments later. He glanced back at the parked Holden, 15 seconds late for his 1pm appointment, when this happened. Detective Robin Bailey was thrown back seven metres into the bluestone wall of the magistrate's court. The wind knocked out of his body as the Commodore in front of him exploded, disintegrating and sending shards of metal flying around. Constable Carl Donadio was thrown back some 15 metres, his body skimming across the bitumen surface. When he came to rest, Carl felt a deep gash in his leg. Two officers from nearby came to his aid, moving to relative safety as a handful of secondary explosions rang out in the area. 
Carl would later discover he had further serious injuries, including a punctured lung. Bernie Barmer, a criminal lawyer who looked a bit like the late great fast bowler Max Walker, was gazing out of his nearby office when he heard the blast. Any thoughts of a strong latte were pushed to the back of his mind as Bernie ran from his office to help. He rounded the corner into the quadrangle of the Melbourne Magistrates Court. Here, he saw Constable Angela Taylor on the ground. Flames were flickering on her shoes and her white shirt was in tatters, hanging from her badly burned body. Bernie rendered assistance best he could, helping Angela to the floor of a nearby office. He remained with her and called for help as the young officer endured unimaginable pain and shock before drifting off into unconsciousness. Outside, Magistrate Ian West was severely injured too. As Charlie Bazina looked back up the street, he saw a plume of fine black dust up in the sky. The blast had shook the foundations of nearby buildings, cracked glass fell from windows, smoke billowed and debris rained from above as a charred smell engulfed the top end of Melbourne. An eerie silence and stillness then washed over the area as people slowly came to their senses and began fearing a second explosion to rival or eclipse the first. Many thought this was a terrorist attack. It certainly looked more like Beirut, Lebanon than Melbourne, Victoria, a comparison media outlet swarming the area would later report. 22 people were injured, half of them police, with Constables Taylor, Donadio and Magistrate Ian West in the most critical conditions. Victoria's Police Special Operations Group were usually the ones called to the action. Now the action had landed on their front doorstep. SOG bomb expert, Senior Constable Dennis Tipping, made his way through the blackened war zone. In his experience, the first blast sucked you in, it was the second one that killed you. Detonators littered the road and blew secondary explosions at random intervals, sending shrapnel over the bleeding, wounded people being dragged away from the blast site. The car on the north side, the Brown and Fawn Commodore, was obliterated, but the SOG suspected a second bomb car on the south side. Dennis Tipping edged closer to extinguish the flames engulfing the vehicle in question. Luckily, there wasn't a second bomb. It was just an undercover police car. Within 45 minutes, the city was completely sealed off and Constables Angela Taylor, Carl Donadio and Magistrate Ian West were taken to hospital for medical attention. The clues police wanted lay in the debris scattered across several city blocks. It took police five days to trawl through the devastation and gather all of the evidence. A task force of 100 officers was established immediately, a prominent member being then-Detective Sergeant Bernie Rankin, who joined the team promptly after returning from Adelaide upon hearing about the attack. And it was clearly that, an attack on Victoria Police. The Defence Force were called in to assist as a team of crime scene examiners led by Officer Wayne Ashley began to meticulously comb through the charred wreckage. They bagged up piles of evidence, which was then laboriously and systematically processed. The remains of the bomb car had landed metres away from where it was originally parked. In that spot was now a large crater the size of a kitchen sink. In front of the vehicle down the road were some unexploded sticks of gel ignite amongst a copious amount of electrical wire. The back of the Commodore was blown to smithereens, suggesting the main bomb of approximately 56 of gelignite was in the boot, but a secondary explosion, which would have been larger than the first, hadn't gone off. 
64 sticks of gel ignite in the centre console of the car hadn't triggered, which was close to a miracle. Whoever had driven the car there had taken a great risk in doing so. The gel ignite was an extremely unstable substance and the homemade auxiliary devices weren't exactly expertly crafted. After assessing the genesis of the blast, an intended blast, and then safely securing the area, police began to uncover clues which would hopefully lead them to the culprits. They found a block of wood which looked like an offcut from a red gum fence post. The bomb had been mounted on this and then sat on some bread crates in the boot. On the piece of wood was a sliver of metal, the remnants of an alarm clock, and a chuck's wipe or sponge. This had been used as a buffer between the ignition components and the timing device to prevent triggering until the timing was right. When it was, the alarm clock rang, completing the circuit between the batteries and detonator, which then exploded the bomb. The melted bread crate was interesting to police. It happened to be similar in appearance to a bunch that were stolen from a milk bar robbery in the Melbourne suburb of Brayside some six weeks earlier. The thieves had made off with the crates and a bunch of cigarettes and lollies, but they were also just as likely commonplace bread crates. The fence post too, while interesting, was just a hunk of lumber at this stage. It'd be the vehicle itself which would provide police with their first avenues of inquiry. The 1979 Brown and Fawn VB Holden Commodore, with its trendy gold mags and twin exhaust, had been stolen just two weeks earlier, and the police may not have known that had the number plates not remained intact. The bomber or bombers maybe expected them to disintegrate in the second larger blast, but it hadn't gone off, so police were able to ascertain the registration, AVQ505. The owner had reported the vehicle missing, stolen from Brandon Park Shopping Centre in Mulgrave a fortnight ago. Discussions with him were able to confirm things that were missing from the vehicle, some tools of his, for example, but also what wasn't his. A red and cream checkered blanket covered in dog hair wasn't his, for example. The gel ignite, over half of which hadn't detonated, suggesting an amateur job, was also a valuable clue. Police traced this stuff back to the town of Blackwood, where some six months earlier it had been stolen from the Taconnell mine. So we have a number of clues coming together here. Question was, what were police to do with them? Where did they point? Amidst the processing of evidence, the investigation was underway as tips and theories began swirling throughout the police force, media and general public. Several days after the bombing, Chief Commissioner Mick Miller received a series of interesting phone calls, five calls in total, from an anonymous caller who claimed to have footage of the people responsible for the bombing and he also demanded $500,000 for the information and footage that he had. These calls were all traced back to various phone booths around the St Kilda area, which is a stone's throw southeast from Melbourne's CBD. Chief Commissioner Miller came up with a cunning plan to try and lure this caller out of the woodwork. On the 4th of April, Premier John Kane and Commissioner Miller held a press conference where they announced a $500,000 reward for information leading to the apprehension of the perpetrators. This was hoped to work on one of two fronts. One, in the genuine sense, if someone out there knew something, they might come forward with financial persuasion and tell the police. And two, they hoped it might encourage this random caller to rear his head again and phone in. Police had the leg up this time as they had crews of officers staked out across St Kilda and Elwood, watching the many phone booths in the area. It took a while, 
But on Wednesday the 16th of April, around two weeks later, Detective Mark Caulfield was staking out a haggard old telecom box in St Kilda when he saw a man enter. Moments later, the message came through that the commissioner had a call. It was their man. Caulfield pounced and arrested the man and brought him in for questioning. He was 38-year-old Vladimir Richter, an industrial chemist, and he knew nothing and had nothing when it came to the Russell Street bombing. His information was false and he was charged with hindering the investigation. While Vladimir Richter was wasting McMiller's time and diverting police resources, other task force officers were conducting raids on known criminals who, on paper, might have been good for the crime. The task force seized a lot of drugs, but it became evident even the usual suspects thought the bombing was a bit much. And that's saying something, isn't it, that the criminal world thought these bombers had gone too far. At this time, Constable Angela Taylor was still in hospital in a critical condition. Constable Carl Donadio and Magistrate Ian West were making slow but steady recoveries. Aside from Vladimir Richter, one of the first suspects police looked at was a man who was actually facing court on the day of the bombing. This guy's name was Philip Grant Wilson. He was described as a neo-Nazi and suspected murderer with explosives on his mind. Wilson had once planned to abduct and kill a certain member of the Special Operations Group. He'd never done it, but police were theorising this bomb might have been his way of getting back at the officers who charged him on this occasion. Wilson knew from the get-go he was in the crosshairs and promptly contacted John Sylvester, the well-known journalist and crime writer, to get his side of the story on record and profess his innocence. Wilson worried that if he didn't get on the front foot about it, he might end up dead himself soon enough. He was quickly eliminated as a suspect as inquiries progressed. And they progressed to focus on a witness sighting, which led to an identikit image. The identikit portrayed a man with short, dark hair and a handlebar moustache. And the witness said they'd seen this guy around 12.30pm on the day of the bombing, parking an eerily similar brown and fawn Holden Commodore outside of police HQ in Russell Street. It was compelling stuff, and with the police microscope already on Melbourne's criminal underbelly, it didn't take long for one career criminal to stand out from the crowd. Bearing a striking resemblance to the identikit was an armed robber named Claudio Krupe. Krupe was out on bail at this time, soon to face the music on burglary charges. But he had a known disdain for the police. Inquiries into Claudio Krupe revealed more compelling information which sent him straight to the top of the suspect list. A witness reported seeing Krupe on the morning of the bombing making or wrapping some form of explosive device in his kitchen, which could have been gelignite. Off the back of this, police raided Krupe's house and found a homemade device on his kitchen table. Problem was, Krupe himself was nowhere to be found. He'd fled Melbourne apparently not long after the bombing. Police soon located him in Sydney and hauled him back down to Melbourne for questioning. Claudio Krupe did bear a decent resemblance to the identikit photo. However, it was a fairly generic look, particularly at this time in the 80s. A lineup was next on the cards, something Krupe had no issue in participating in, and that's because he was innocent, at least he proclaimed to be. Despite the circumstantial evidence against him, Krupe denied any involvement in the Russell Street bombing. Krupe had a known disdain for the police, as we said, but also a particular grudge against a specific detective at the Russell Street location. But this wasn't his plan, according to Krupe himself. 
and the device they'd found at his home, it was a fake, which he'd planned to throw through the window at the Flemington police station as a bit of a scare tactic. So he sure didn't seem to be the brightest criminal out there, Claudio Krupe. If he was telling the truth, though, he was also the unluckiest, choosing the exact same day as the Russell Street attack to cobble together his own replica bomb for shits and giggles. But with nothing else against him, no positive lineup identification, Claudio Krupe was free to go, for now. During this same time frame, police were looking into a second viable lead. Detectives Arthur Adams and John Bradbury from the Stolen Vehicles Squad were at Victoria Police Compound examining the remnants of the bomb car. One thing stood out to them straight away when they popped the hood. The vehicle identification number or VIN number on the chassis had been drilled out. This was strange to the detectives as they usually saw crooks grinding off the VIN number so they could be altered down the track. As they were inspecting the blackened bomb car, a much better conditioned silver Commodore was dropped at the compound. This was a 1985 VK Commodore HDT, a Peter Brock special vehicle. It caught detectives' attention so they had a similar cursory squiz under the hood. And the VIN number on the chassis had also been drilled out on this car. Again, an unusual thing for vehicle thieves to do. The usual practice at this time was for something called rebirthing, whereby the thieves buy a wreck, steal a similar car, wreck the ID on the stolen car, then re-register as a new vehicle after sprucing it up. But it appeared to Adams and Bradbury this drilling method was unique and a high probability of being the same offender. The Silverbrock Special had been transported from Wonga Park in Melbourne's Outer East where police had located it abandoned in the Yarra River on the 7th of April 1986. And interestingly, the Brock Special matched the description of a vehicle which had been used in a ram raid robbery at the National Australia Bank in Donvale, which had occurred around 3pm on the very same day as the Russell Street bombing. So this was an interesting potential connection here. What was even more interesting was that police were already aware of this stolen Brock Special in a less literal sense. They'd found the number plates of the car, which had been reported stolen, during a pursuit back on the 6th of March, four weeks earlier. In this incident, long before the days of Vic Pol's no-pursuit policy, a traffic officer was hot on the heels of a stolen red Daimler Sovereign. As the driver attempted to outrun police down the old Calder Highway from East Keylor, they crashed the Daimler and jumped out and hoofed it to nearby St Albans. At this time, the offender held up a motorist at gunpoint and stole their car before fleeing the area, so he got away for now, but police had a description to work with. The intriguing thing was, in the boot of the busted Daimler, the thief had left a backpack. Inside the backpack were shards of a cut-up number plate. When Jigsaw puzzled back together, these plates formed the registration number CCH997, the rego of the Silver Brock Special. So that begged the question, who was the guy driving the red Daimler? Well, the pursuing traffic officer in the chase got a look at him in St Albans right before the thief discharged his gun in the succeeding theft and fled the area. After browsing a series of mugshots, the officer identified a man named Peter Reed. Reed was already on police radar as a suspected armed robber and motor vehicle thief, as were several of his associates and family members. In fact, Peter Reid had been under police surveillance on the day of the Russell Street bombing at a residential address in Harros Avenue, Nunawading, and this was for the robberies and thefts mentioned, not in connection with Russell Street. 
But the police hadn't seen Reid leave the address that day and venture into the city, at least not in the vehicle he'd arrived in. Amidst the chaos that had ensued in the following weeks, surveillance on Reid had ceased. Now this connection had been made between the vehicle, it was time to cast an eye on Peter Reid's activities once again. Was he involved in the bombing? Hard to say. It was possible he'd just stolen and supplied the getaway vehicle. But police had reasonable grounds for suspecting his involvement now, and they needed evidence to back it up. He was still running second to the favoured Claudio Krupe on the suspect list at this stage, but that would change. Sadly, it was around this time that Constable Angela Taylor lost the fight for her life, the wound she sustained from the blast simply too much for her to recover from. Angela was remembered warmly by family and colleagues at her funeral service conducted at the Police Academy in Glen Waverley. A sad end to a young life. The tragic turn of events also served to strengthen police's resolve to catch those who were responsible for this brutal attack, which had now taken the life of one of their own. Anzac Day, the 25th of April 1986, police conducted raids at three houses connected with Peter Reid, his brother Stephen's home in Olive Grove, Baronia, 15 Harros Avenue, Nunawadding, where Reid frequented and had been previously surveilled on the day of the bombing, and Reid's own property, which was located at 22 Alpine Crescent in Callista. Callista is a picturesque, sleepy and small little spot nestled in the green foothills of the Dandenong Ranges in Melbourne's Outer East. As Reid was a person of interest in a few areas, armed robbery, stolen vehicle and this potential connection to Russell Street, it was a combined team assembled for the raids, officers from across different units. They assembled at Nunawadding Police Station before dawn to brief and prepare the 10-man crew raiding Reed's Callista address was headed up by Sergeant Mark Wiley. With the mix of crews and equipment, Sergeant Wiley ended up with a shotgun he wasn't familiar with. While trained in the weapon, this was a different make and model. His time to familiarise himself with the gun was limited and consisted of a few pumps of the weapon in the car park prior to leaving with his crew. Upon arriving at Callista, police stormed the premises and yelled warnings to potential occupants. As they approached the master bedroom, police spotted Peter Reid in the reflection of the window. He was wearing pyjamas, crouched on his bed and pointing a 45 caliber revolver at the doorway. Police again warned Reid of their presence and intentions and for him to disarm himself. Then a pair of shots rang out, one whizzing right past Mark Wiley's nose. The sergeant returned fire, blasting two rounds through the door of the bedroom in Reid's direction. But then his shotgun jammed. Being unfamiliar with the weapon, Wiley took a moment to clear the gun and reload before entering the room. As the barrel of his shotgun nudged past the open door, Wiley noticed Reed wasn't on the bed anymore. He'd moved. Another two shots rang out and ripped straight through Mark Wiley's midsection, and the nimble Reed emerged from the other side of the bed behind the doorway, having moved from his previous location. Wiley, hit badly, retreated from the room as another officer, Steve Quincy, bravely walked into the line of fire and exchanged shots with Peter Reed. This time, Reed was hit and wounded, and Quincy and his team promptly arrested him. 
While wounded, Sergeant Wiley still had the presence of mind to tell his team to bag the bullet that had gone through him as evidence as he lay there bleeding on the living room floor. Mark Wiley went on to recover from his wounds and interestingly, while in hospital, received a surprise and purposefully low-key visit from a man named Mick Gatto. When asked by Gatto what his favourite food was, Wiley responded that it was Chinese. The following night, Wiley enjoyed a takeaway banquet fit for a king from the famed Flower Drum restaurant. Just an interesting little side note there that maybe backs up that theory that both sides of the fence weren't too happy with those responsible for the Russell Street attack. Back out at Callista, forensics combed Peter Reed's house for evidence and they found plenty. More firearms in addition to his revolver, two Remington shotguns and two Browning sawn-offs. These two had their serial numbers drilled out, the markings consistent with the Brock Special and the bomb car. Police scanners were located and on the floor was a canvas bag with two detonators on top. Inside the bag were some neatly wrapped packages of gelignite, four sticks in total, which had been wrapped in a newspaper, the Albury's Border Mail specifically. In another room, police found some automotive parts, silver panels matching the Brock Special and some bread crates. They located nothing matching this block of wood, though, which the bomb had been mounted on. But they did find some fingerprints, some on the paper wrapping around the gelignite and some on the toilet door, which police took away for processing. The raid at Reed's brother Stephen's house in Olive Grove, Baronia, maybe 20 minutes closer to Melbourne in the east, went without incident. Here, police located some clothing, tools and car accessories, which linked back to the bomb car. The owner of that vehicle had noted these items as being missing from the car. They also found a drill bit which had paint flecks on it, consistent with the bomb car too, alongside some more firearms with the serial numbers drilled out. The third address was 15 Harros Avenue in Nunawading. Living here was a guy named Carl Zelinka and his girlfriend Karen. Zelinka had no criminal record, he was a clean skin, but Peter Reid had visited here on a number of occasions, including the day of the bombing. So police wondered what Zelinka's association might be. The raid on this location, again, was without incident, and police located a firearm alongside with a whole bunch of cigarettes, confectionery, and some bread crates again, linking back to the Brayside Milk Bar robbery weeks earlier. But there was nothing directly linked to the bombing. Police had a yarn with Carl Zelinka, but he wasn't very forthcoming. Cooperative in a sense, but he denied knowing Peter Reid, which police knew was untrue. Carl seemed to have something weighing him down, though, police noted. Something was on his mind. He wasn't filling them in completely. After the raid, they let him simmer for the time being, while charging Peter Reid with two counts of attempted murder and several other things, including armed robbery, upon him being discharged from hospital after his bullet wounds were treated. Meanwhile, the results of fingerprint analysis from Reid's house had come back, and they'd got a hit. On the wrapping of the parcels of gelignite were the fingerprints of a young man named Rodney Minogue, and on the toilet door, those of his older brother, Craig Minogue. Both were young, brash, petty criminals, and Rodney had served time with Peter Reid. In Craig Minogue's file, police discovered another interesting link. After appearing in court one day, Craig had been picked up by a vehicle registered to none other than Carl Zelinka. So a couple of interesting links here. And police had a few things to go back and chat with Carl Zelinka about at this point. Carl had already said he didn't know Peter Reid, and apparently he also didn't know the Minogue brothers. The issue was, 
Police suspected he was lying before. Now they knew it for sure. And not just because of the vehicle link, but police had also visited Carl's neighbours and shown them photographs of both Reed and the Minogue brothers. All of these neighbours confirmed the trio had visited Carl's Linker's property a number of times in the weeks gone by. Another visit to Carl's house provided police with some vital clues. Firstly, a member of the police bomb squad had been pondering the metal strip found on the block of wood used to mount the bomb in the attack. And the bomb expert had come to the sudden realisation one night that this piece of metal wasn't just an offcut from somewhere. It was the handle from a bin, one of those old school round metal bins with the metal lid. You don't see them around nowadays, but back in 1986 they were common. When the police visited Carl at Harros Avenue for a second time, they noticed his bin didn't have a lid at all. And the bin itself only had one handle. The other had been cut off and the one remaining looked hacked at as if practised on. Carl couldn't explain the handle or the stray lid. He provided vague answers to police about this. Then the police had another wander through the backyard. At every premises they'd searched so far, including Harris Avenue previously, they'd searched high and low for any trace of this fence post that had been cut off to make the bomb mounting block. But none of the places they'd been to had fences or posts that matched. Bomb expert Bob Barnes was along for this search, however, and he and Detective Bernie Rankin were wandering through Carl's backyard conducting another search. All of a sudden, Bob beelined for a spot along the fence line, which was half shrouded in a camellia bush. He jumped the fence into the neighbour's property. Bernie Rankin was wondering what Bob was up to, and that's when he heard the chuckling from behind the fence. Bernie poked his head over, and Bob looked up with a grin. He'd found it. In the neighbour's house was a near-identical fence post with the top freshly lopped off, something that could have easily been done by someone at Harros Avenue with a saw by ducking under the camellia and leaning over the fence. The police brought the bomb block piece in to compare, and it had an imperfection in the wood, what Bernie Rankin called a fault line running at an angle through the entire fence post. When the bomb block was put on top, the fault line, unique to that piece of timber, lined up perfectly with the fence post. Harros Avenue was, for all intents and purposes, looking like Bomb HQ, and Carl Zelinka was up to his neck in it. Realising this, Carl soon came around and told the police everything he knew, on the condition that he and his family would be protected. Carl admitted to knowing Peter Reid and the Minogue brothers, and that he'd also robbed the Brayside milk bar with the men, but he had nothing to do with the bombing. The Minogue brothers had actually been living at Carl's house, but they'd since moved out. Peter Reid visited frequently, and Carl said on the Tuesday before the bombing, he arrived in a two-tone brown and fawn Holden Commodore, which he parked in the garage. Upon going into the garage at one time after this, Carl also saw a box of explosives. He confronted Craig Minogue about it and was told to forget what he saw. Craig then bought Carl and Karen flights to Sydney for Easter. When they returned, both Rodney and Craig Minogue had moved out. So this put a lot of pieces together for the police, and Carl seemed to have unloaded that aforementioned burden. He was now being extremely cooperative, having previously been scared to tell the police what he knew. Combined with the fact that he didn't have a criminal record, and Carl's version of events had credibility. Around this time, Peter Reid's brother Stephen, who had also been charged in connection with the bombing, had those charges dropped due to insufficient evidence. 
Peter Reid, though, he was being held for the attempted murder charges after shooting Sergeant Mark Wiley. He was now being charged with the murder of Angela Taylor after Carl connected the final lingering dot implicating him. But the big question now was, where were the Minogue brothers? They hadn't been seen since moving out of Harros Avenue. Carl wasn't sure where they were, but he knew of a guy who might. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The now forthcoming Carl Zelenka told police about a guy, some twice their age, late 40s or 50, who visited the Minogue brothers on occasion. He lived in the country, this guy, and Carl only knew him by the moniker Stan the Man. He gave police a description of what Stan the Man looked like, and Detective Sergeant Bernie Rankin asked one of his diligent detectives named Mark Harris to go to records and find this guy. And find him he did. Harris pulled up the record for a guy named Stanley Brian Taylor. He was a seriously violent armed robber in his early days and had done hard time, but he'd seemingly reformed. He'd been out and clean for a number of years now, and it appeared he'd even mentored youth, trying to keep them on the straight and narrow. Stan Taylor's driver's licence was registered to the Minogue brothers' parents' address, which was strange. Question was, what was this older, seemingly reformed ex-con doing hanging out with young petty crims like the Minogues? Police would have to dig further into his background to get the full picture. Stan Taylor's criminal record dated back to the 1940s when he was just eight. He'd been arrested for truancy and spent two years in the Bayswater Boys' Home. Upon release, he was picked up for fishing in prohibited areas. These minor offences would escalate in his teenage years, as Stan copped a number of vehicle theft and burglary charges. It was in 1961 that he got done for a serious armed robbery holding up a milk bar in Clayton. This landed him in Pentridge Prison inside the notorious H Division. Stan escaped from Pentridge once and went on a five-day crime spree, robbing seven banks during this time before being recaptured. He also participated in the prison riots of 1972, during which he earned the nickname of Wild Man. But as the years rolled on, Stan lost more of his hair and his bad attitude with it. By the mid to late 70s, he'd calmed right down and become a model prisoner. So much so that upon release in 1978, Stan decided he wanted to help those like him, 10 or 20 years younger, so they could learn from his mistakes and not end up behind bars. Along with his noble social work, Stan also dabbled in acting, reportedly having some charm about him. He had bit parts in episodes of TV series Prisoner and Cop Shop. While working for the Commonwealth Support Scheme in the suburb of Murrelbark, Stan the Man met the Minogue brothers. He and Craig in particular formed a friendship from here on, the pair at one stage putting on a bush theatre show for some neighbourhood children, Stan playing Robin Hood and Craig Minogue, Friar Tuck. 
Nowadays, Stan lived in Birchip, a small rural town 300 kilometres northwest of Melbourne. Locally, he'd carved himself a new persona, appearing retired and blending in at the local footy club, charming his way around the place. Police made their way to Birchip, storming Stan's house in Watcham Street, where he lived with his partner, and they promptly arrested him before searching the home. Stan, ever the actor, came out with his hands in the air and protested his innocence, but he said nothing else, at least publicly he didn't. When the doors of the interview room closed and performance time was over, Stan the man Taylor wilted with little pressure. Described by detectives as an old lag, Stan was quick to throw the Minogue brothers and Peter Reed under the bus while trying to make a deal to save his own skin. He directly implicated the young trio in the Russell Street bombing and gave police their location. The Minogue brothers had recently moved to Birchip 2, Lockwood Street, not far from Stan Taylor. When police showed up, the pair weren't there, but they'd left plenty behind. Police found firearms and a high-speed engraving unit with a burr implement that testing later revealed was consistent with the drill markings across all of the firearms retrieved to date and the chassis of both the bomb car and the Brock Special. They also found Craig Minogue's Bull Terrier dog, the hairs of which were matched to those found on the red and cream blanket found within the bomb car. Police also discovered the brothers owned a storage locker in the New South Wales Victorian border city of Albury, the location itself supporting the discovery of the border mail newspaper at Peter Reid's house. If you recall, the sticks of gelignite were wrapped in this. Upon raiding this storage locker, police located wire cutters, tin snips, more explosive detonators and a detonator's handbook, all of which matched the crime scene evidence and further testing confirmed this. The tools used, for example, were all determined to make identical cuts and impressions to those used in creating the Russell Street bomb. But again, the Minogue brothers themselves remained elusive. They weren't at home or anywhere else in Bertrip itself. But their old pal Stan was only too happy to help police in hopes of striking a deal. He gladly gave up the details of where both Craig and Rodney were holed up. An hour's drive north of Birchip took police to the border city of Swan Hill. Here, the Special Operations Group stormed the Lady Jane Motel, where inside one of the rooms, they located and arrested Craig and Rodney Minogue. The pair had a sawn-off shotgun on the ground between their beds, but they didn't get the chance to use it. While being dragged out in cuffs, Craig said to his brother, "'Don't forget the rules, Rodney.'" When questioning began, it was evident that Craig would follow his own advice. He gave his name and address, but didn't speak a word to investigators otherwise. Rodney, however, well, he telephoned his mum and made immediate and honest disclosures to investigators. And the jig was up. Stan the man Taylor had seemingly planned this whole operation. Turned out he'd been routinely grooming young men for this kind of thing, when he was meant to be doing the opposite. But while police believed the younger Rodney, it was still a case of one story versus another. They needed another gap filler, another person like Carl Zelinka who could corroborate this tale and implicate Stan Taylor as the orchestrator of the attack. And they'd find a man to fill this very role, a guy by the name of Paul Hetzel. Hetzel had been at Stan Taylor's house and was arrested too when police first visited Birchip. He and Stan had a long-standing history, having served time in Pentridge together. Hetzel, too, was a seasoned armed robber in his youth, with a string of violent offences to his name. In 1985, 
he and Stan Taylor met up again on the outside and Stan introduced him to the animals, as he liked to call the young crew of miscreants in Reed and the Minogue brothers. Paul Hetzel became part of the group and participated in the stealing of the gel ignite from the Turconnell mine in Blackwood some six months before the bombing. Hetzel said it was just a smash and grab at the time. There was no one at the mine. They cut the locks, broke into the steel strong room and took three boxes of detonators and gel ignite. There was no plan at that stage to do anything with the explosives. That came afterwards when Stan Taylor suggested they make a bomb and stick it in a car outside of Russell Street Police HQ. All of the animals, for lack of a better term, had a deep-seated and growing hatred of the police, fostered by Stan the Man and his younger counterparts, who he was meant to be steering towards a crime-free lifestyle. Paul Hetzel saw testing of the explosives in late 1985 at a regional location in Victoria. But despite this and Stan Taylor's noted plans, Hetzel didn't think they were serious. The plan seemed too outrageous to him. But Hetzel was in deep by this time and he wanted out. To police, he was clearly afraid of the men, not just of older Stan, but the volatile brothers as well. At first, police thought Paul Hetzel was just another one of the crew, a probable perpetrator equally as guilty and complicit. But over time, Hetzel's fear of these men dissipated the more he spoke with detectives. He appeared to want to do the right thing, and he did, becoming the perfect gap filler for police and prosecutors and turning Crown witness at trial. Craig Minogue was charged for the murder of Constable Angela Taylor and numerous other associated offences. Rodney Minogue was charged as an accessory after the fact. Stan Taylor, Craig Minogue, Peter Reid and Rodney Minogue were all to face the music at trial in the time after this. The prosecution outlined their case. The bomb car had been stolen, stored and used by the men to transport the bomb to Russell Street. It was driven by Craig Minogue and Peter Reid, with Stan Taylor following in the Silver Brock Special Commodore. And as we mentioned earlier, this likely happened right under the police's nose, as the stolen vehicle squad were surveilling Peter Reid at this time for other reasons but they simply weren't looking out for a Brown and Fawn Holden Commodore. They parked the car outside the southern door of Russell Street, removed the chuck swipe, setting the bomb. When 1pm rolled around, the crew was sitting in the Brock Special some distance away. Initially concerned when it didn't go off at one on the dot, they soon rejoiced when it did, watching the carnage and chaos ensue that we covered in the introduction. In a trial that was one of the longest in Victorian criminal history, It was Detective Robin Bailey who first gave evidence. If we recall earlier, Detective Bailey was blown back half a dozen metres into the bluestone wall after fetching ATO forms for himself and his colleagues. As the detective left the court after giving his testimony, Craig Minogue spat on him. Paul Hetzel and Carl Zelinka, the Crown's two star witnesses, gave evidence throughout the trial and they did so truthfully. The issue came with Hetzel's criminal record and subsequent credibility, a problem the jury potentially had with him that they didn't have with Carl Zelinka. Always a hurdle for prosecutors when a convicted criminal turns on his own kind. There was a lot of evidence presented implicating Craig Minogue, witnesses seeing him both in the area, preparing beforehand, and even making phone calls to people about the functioning of detonators. After eight months and 156 witnesses, Stan Taylor and Craig Minogue were found guilty of the murder of Constable Angela Taylor 
and the intention to cause serious harm to Magistrate Ian West and Constable Carl Donadio. Several other offences were tacked onto that, and the pair received life sentences. Stan Taylor, without the possibility of parole, which was actually the first time this sentence had been handed down in Victoria. Craig Minogue's sentence had a 28-year minimum term, making him eligible for parole in 2016, which he's yet to receive for reasons we'll come to. Rodney Minogue was also found guilty of being an accessory after the fact. However, that was later quashed on appeal. Rodney was released from prison in 1990. Peter Reid, he was found guilty of attempted murder in relation to him firing at Officer Steve Quincy and guilty of recklessly causing injury to Sergeant Mark Wiley. But he was found not guilty on the bombing charges, something police were bitterly disappointed about at the time and possibly still. Peter Reid served nine years in jail before being released in 1995. Craig Minogue has been very vocal while serving his prison sentence and according to him, as plastered on his own website, he's since reformed and apologised for his past crimes. It would take a while before Craig Minogue began talking like this. After only being behind bars for a couple of years, Craig Minogue beat fellow inmate Alex Zachmarcus to death with a pillowcase full of weight plates. He also participated in the Jika Jika fire at Pentridge protesting against prison conditions. It was after all of this, Craig Minogue alleges he cleaned up his act. After entering the prison system virtually illiterate, he went on to obtain a Bachelor of Arts and a PhD in Applied Ethics and Human and Social Sciences. But the likes of now-retired Detective Inspector Bernie Rankin and many others aren't convinced. So much so that the Victorian Parliament has actually passed specific legislation twice to keep Craig Minogue behind bars. And so far they've succeeded. But Craig has been extremely vocal on the internet and social media, relying on a member of the public to post his messaging, which he relays via telephone. He's appealed exhaustively and even tried to get deported back to the UK where he became a citizen in 1983. Stanley Taylor died at St Vincent's Hospital in 2016, aged 79, after ailing health over the previous 12 months. But even in death, Stan Taylor has been implicated in more crimes alongside his younger chums, as recently as May 2019. Stan Taylor, Craig Minogue and Peter Reid were charged with historic sexual assault offences after DNA testing connected the trio to a series of attacks that occurred before the Russell Street bombing back in late 1985 and early 1986. Stan Taylor can't answer these charges, obviously, but Craig Minogue and Peter Reid can. At this stage, I'm not sure there's been a resolution to these charges, but we know the basics of the allegations, which total 38 offences, including abduction by force and aggravated rape. The first attack is alleged to have occurred on November 22, 1985, when the female victim was selling flowers on Chapel Street, South Yarra. She was abducted off the street and taken to a nearby house before being repeatedly sexually assaulted by at least three men. She was then dumped on Yarra Boulevard in Richmond the following day. On March 26, 1986, the day before the Russell Street bombing, a teenage girl was walking to her boyfriend's parents' house in Ashwood Drive, Nunawading, before being abducted off the street. She was taken to an unknown house where she was repeatedly sexually assaulted. The men then dumped her in a car park in Ringwood. So these are allegations at this stage, as far as we're aware, linked decades later by improved DNA testing, 
Interesting that if proven to be true, Craig Minogue hasn't confessed to these, which doesn't add up with his statement claiming he's admitted and apologised for the crimes he's committed. In fact, he's actually denied any involvement in these attacks. But adding to that, if he were to receive another sentence for this, would that be on top of what he's currently served? He received another conviction for murdering his fellow inmate, but he was able to serve that time concurrently, so it didn't really add much, if anything, to his current sentence. But we wanted to finish up on a note about the victims of this devastating attack because they're not limited to Constable Angela Taylor and those who were injured. Obviously, Angela's family and friends had to cope with her loss, her parents in particular, Arthur and Marilyn. Our thoughts go out to them. But as always, there's a scatter effect with crimes like this. Former detective Mark Wiley, who was shot by Peter Reid in the Callista raid, he recovered from those physical wounds and went on to be promoted and served further time in the police force before eventually retiring. But the emotional scars never left Mark Wiley. Sadly, in 2014, aged 61, Mark took his own life. In the 12 months prior, he was said to have been suffering greatly, battling the psychological demons. Those close to him tried to help, but in the end they couldn't. It was commented by some that he never truly recovered from that shooting and that he was another victim of this crime. And we have another person to discuss, a young woman. If we cast our minds back to the friendship Paul Hetzel shared with Stan Taylor once upon a time, after the Russell Street bombing, Stan the man visited his younger pal Hetzel and appeared very proud of what they'd done. Hetzel said Craig Minogue visited too, but was less proud and more threatening. Paul Hetzel's partner was a woman named Julie. Julie had a granddaughter she was very close with named Prudence Bird. Paul Hetzel alleges Craig Minogue told him and Julie never to go to the police with what they knew, adding, quote, It'd be a shame if anything happened to your little Prue. Craig Minogue later denied saying this, noting Paul Hetzel's proven criminal history and alleging in return that he was involved in the Russell Street attack and had simply turned into a dog. Whatever the case, the fact remains that a then 13-year-old Prue Bird disappeared from her home in Glenroy under mysterious circumstances in 1992. No trace of her has ever been found since. And you have to ask, was Prue the final victim connected to the Russell Street bombing? We'll explore that when we tell Prue's story in our next episode. And interestingly, Chloe, we'll see things link back to our case last week on the Vegas schoolgirl murders making it a quasi-part three in this stretch of recent episodes. Yeah, and for me, bombings have to be one of the scariest crimes. There is so much damage, intended and collateral. I can't comprehend many of the crimes that we talk about, but to target a group of people in such a big, violent way really puts a pit in my stomach. I can't imagine what kind of person would be okay with inflicting that much pain on that scale. The network of people involved in this also reminds me of how insidious crime can be. My thoughts go out to Angela's family, friends and colleagues and the other people involved on the day who no doubt were impacted by this crime for a long time after it happened, as we said. That's pretty much it from me. How about you? Much the same, Chloe, just as you said regarding the, the devastation of a crime like this, you know, that scatter effect we talked about. What stood out to me was how hard this hit Victoria Police, you know, how determined yeah. they were to catch these guys and the broader impact this had on Melbourne itself. But I, th- I think it'll be interesting getting into next week's case to explore 
some of the links back to this attack. Um, that's it for me. Well, since I'm going to disappoint, do you want to go first with your happy thought? What's yours? Sure, I'll try and uh, <laughs> I'll try and bolster things for the day as you're uh, rehashing <laughs> old happy thoughts. But, uh, I had uh, Friday off work and I was just able to spend it uh, with just myself and my, my youngest daughter, which uh, is something we don't get to do too much, particularly in recent times with everyone being, you know, kind of stuck at home yeah. uh, for the better part of this year. But um you know, I haven't been able to do, uh, you know, she's obviously gotten a lot older in that in this sort of time and it's, it was nice to do something with just me and her without everyone else around. We spent the day uh, kind of hanging out, went to the cafe and we were able to, um, she's into cars uh, and yeah. my, my, our oldest daughter, a lot of the toys and things we have at home, she's quite girly, so they're very girly toys. So I was able to get her some little um, little kind of matchbox cars and we are able to play with that's those, awesome. which she enjoyed. So, yeah, that's my happy thought. What's yours? That's a good one. Um, so last week I smugly said that everyone's heard me talk about going to the gym and boot camp so much. I'm not going to use that one. However, I forgot I'm not leaving my house for any reason at the moment. And other than working and doing the podcast, that's all I'm doing. So mine is that I've been doing boot camps um, at a local park. You can do two people, one PT at the moment. Um, just outside, not at an actual gym. And it's just so good. Like you don't work as hard by yourself as you do with someone else. And just the feeling of getting real sweaty, um, heart beating in my head kind of feeling, I love it. And I can't inflict it on myself. So it's been a little bit of um, endorphin boosting a couple of times a week. Um, My husband and I got up this morning and did an eight o'clock one on a Sunday. So my level of smug is also super high today. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's pretty much it. Just getting outside and being active. And after the last couple of months, it, you can forget how stationary you can be. So it feels good. Um, But yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. (laughs) It it sounds great. It's inspirational in one way. It also sounds like a much harder Sunday than I'd like to have. uh... (laughs) (laughs) That is true. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get all of our bonus content, monthly Blue Label episodes, Murder Lounge episodes, blooper reels, sneak previews, and more. That's it from us this week. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.